This is The Guardian. Today, why Western governments can't stop the war in Ukraine. On Tuesday, Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky appeared via video link in the UK Parliament. We do not want to lose what we have, what is ours, our country, Ukraine, just the same way as you once didn't want to lose your country when Nazis started to fight your country. He told the story of the invasion day by day. On day five, the terror against us was going on against children, against cities, and constant shelling have been taking place. Including his disappointment at what happened last Friday. On day nine, there was a meeting of NATO countries without the um, the result that we were looking for. Yes, we did feel that. That was when NATO the alliance of the US, Canada and 28 European countries, but not Ukraine, met and doubled down on their decision not to introduce a no-fly zone over Zelensky's shattered country. He explained what that decision meant for Ukrainians. On day 13, in the city of Mariupol that was attacked by the Russian force, a child was killed. They do not allow any food, any water, and people started panicking. And echoing the words of Winston Churchill over 80 years ago. We will fight in the forests, in the fields, on the shores, in the streets. Zelensky appealed to the UK to do more. And I'm I'm very grateful to you, Boris. Please increase the pressure of sanctions against this country and please recognize this country as a terrorist state and please make sure that our Ukrainian skies are safe. Over the next weeks, the conflict in Ukraine is likely to get worse. More civilians killed, more Russian advances, crueler tactics. The UK government, its NATO allies and others will be disgusted. They'll condemn Russia. They'll seek new ways to punish it. But as it tries to stop the killing, the world's most powerful military alliance faces an impossible dilemma. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, why NATO is so reluctant to intervene in Ukraine. What's the most important thing you're asking the president for, asking the U.S. for right now? I told him that for us, the most important today is the security in the sky. We cannot uh, allow Russia to be active there. Dan Sabe, you're The Guardian's defence and security editor. And every time someone from the Ukrainian government is asked what they need right now, 
The answer is really simple. It's a no-fly zone. We don't have the sky. We don't control our sky. How does a no-fly zone actually work? What does it mean? And how do you enforce it? So a no-fly zone, well, it is, it is simple in one sense. It's we will prevent anyone's planes operating over, over a particular airspace. It was being implemented first time in Iraq in the, in the early 1990s following the first Gulf War. There was a desire to protect the minority Kurds in the north of Iraq who had risen up against Saddam Hussein. And, you know, Saddam Hussein had the capability of bombing them from the air. And, and a no-fly zone was able to prevent that and give some space for sort of forces on the ground to defend themselves. So that's the theory. But in a contested airspace, the only way to do that is to knock the other side's planes out, out of the air. And, and you know, that, that that's a very different proposition particularly when you're up against, you know, a large and capable air force like Russia's. I see. So in the Iraqi example, they they might have been willing to knock an Iraqi plane out of the air and deal with the consequences that came from that. In this case, with Russia, not so much. Uh, Precisely. Iraq wasn't a nuclear power or or, or anything like it or a military power of significant scale and scope. And the West has been pretty clear about that. And and, and that position hasn't moved pre-war and post-war, if you like. NATO is a defensive alliance. Our core task is to keep our 30 nations safe. We are not part of this conflict. And we have a responsibility to ensure it does not escalate and spread beyond Ukraine. I think the real difficulty at the moment is Ukraine is desperate for more help. It is steadily and slowly losing this war against Russia almost certainly. Incredible amounts of civilian casualties. I don't think we have anything like a sense of what's going on. And against such a horror, you could see why the Ukrainian politicians are saying, if we had some air support, we might really be able to turn the tide in this fighting. And frankly speaking, the excuses, I'm just not taking them. We do have children being killed in those airstrikes in in all over the city. Uh, We do hear air raid alerts every like three hours here in Kiev. And I'm not even talking about my native city of Kharkiv, which has been just turned into Aleppo in, in a matter of days. So sorry, it does feel like a betrayal. It does feel like we are left alone to fight this fight. The, the problem, of course, is that as NATO is only too quick to point out, that would mean war with Russia. They would have to not start knocking Russian planes out the sky. And that would be a straight up act of war fighting between NATO and Russia. Но любое движение в этом направлении будет нами рассматриваться как как участие в вооруженном конфликте. And what are we talking about? Well, Vladimir Putin likes to tell us, remind us all the time, Russia's a nuclear power, so don't mess with us because you don't know what can happen. Okay, so it sounds like a no-fly zone is off the table for now as a way of assisting Ukraine. And for the same reason, there's even less talk of sending troops into Ukraine to help its defence. But what about other ways to answer the call from Ukraine to help? I want to take you through the menu of options being presented to leaders in the West right now and get you to talk us through what's already being done, what's on the table and what's being ruled out. So let's start with military equipment and training. What has the West given Ukraine so far? So the West has really given Ukraine a lot of anti-tank weapons. Armed forces are heavily mechanised. Two kinds. The US has uh, given these sort of javelin anti-tank weapons. They're quite sophisticated. They have a range of about two and a half kilometres. 
you have to know how to operate them. You don't sort of press a button, you know, and they go. They are guided anti-tank weapons and have a sort of complex flight path to land on top of a tank and try and knock it out. So the US has led the way in supplying those um, actually since about 2018. But that's obviously massively stepped up recently. And then the UK, with some help from Sweden, has led the way in the supply of these much simpler anti-tank weapons, NLAWs which are sort of shoulder-mounted and they really are point and aim. They're very simple to use by all accounts and they have a range of about sort of 500 metres or so and again sort of, you know, fly towards a tank but have the ability to then sort of do a last-minute flip, as I understand it, and kind of land on top of it. That's the weakest part of the tank. On, on top of that, uh, as well as the, kind of, you know, the regular supply of ammunition and, and, and the basics that you're going to need, we've seen a certain amount of supply laterally of Stinger handheld ground-to-air missiles, man pads, these are sort of been well known from, you know, conflicts dating back to Afghanistan. But again, these are the kind of things that can hit low flying helicopters and planes potentially. These are the weapons that have been supplied. Essentially, the West has been willing and particularly after war has broken out to supply weapons that will halt the Russian advance, but will not stop it and will not decisively turn the battle in the favour of Ukraine. And what Russia has done faced with this is resorted to this barbarous tactics of using its strength in artillery and rocketry and basically start shelling cities fairly indiscriminately, Kharkiv and Mariupol in the east most notably. So we're in a zone where the Western military assistance is helping the Ukrainians but also perhaps prolonging the war. I find that slightly disquieting actually. I think that if military assistance either needs to reach the point where it's profoundly helpful and, and potentially turns the tides and forces, well, maybe even inflicts a defeat on Vladimir Putin. This halfway house is a, is a sort of difficult place to be, I think. Yeah, I can see that would be an extremely tough dilemma, that, that in sort of slowing the Russian advance, you might be kind of changing their tactics and making those tactics far more costly to civilians. But if they really wanted to halt the advance, to do more than just slow it down, what military assistance would they need? Well, what Ukraine badly needs is more air power. And, and although we've talked about a no-fly zone, what it actually really needs is basically air-to-ground capability. We've all seen these satellite images of this vast convoy of forces northwest of Kyiv. Crucially, though, Russia's 64-kilometre-long convoy outside of Kyiv has not advanced much closer. They're having logistics problems, fuel supply problems. The military may be planning to put the city under siege and intensify its bombardment. They're not moving very much. Perhaps they're biding their time, whatever. But it's also a sitting target for the Ukrainians if they could get to it. But the problem is that Ukraine's air force is small. A big operation is very risky because they don't want to lose what they have. So they desperately need more supply. Now, one idea that's been bouncing around, we thought it had gone away, but it now seems to have come back, although none of it's straightforward, is Ukrainian pilots use basically Russian-made MiG-29 fighter jets. So Poland, for example, has a sort of small fleet of MiG-29 jets and appears to be willing to supply these to Ukraine. We are ready to give honour of our fleet uh, of uh, jet fighters. Uh, to Rammstein, but we are not uh, ready to make any moves on our own because, as I said... In return for the Americans backfilling that by giving them some newer F-16s, those would be for Poland. I mean, there, there are some clear difficulties here. The other big story this morning, there is a new offer to provide Ukraine with fighter jets, but that idea won't be taking off anytime soon. 
The Biden administration is now rejecting Poland's plan to arm Ukrainian forces with more air power. The Pentagon says the idea is not tenable, citing concerns that it could further inflame tensions between Russia and NATO and drag the U.S. into the war. Yeah, we've seen these difficulties over the past few days where we saw Poland offer those jets, then the U.S. balk at the idea. And so as it stands now, it's pretty clear that from a military point of view, the world's telling Ukraine's armed forces that we'll give you weapons. But other than that, you're really on your own against the might of Russia's military machine. But there have been some pretty serious economic weapons that the world has been willing to use. What's the intent behind those and what effect are they having so far? Here, I think the West have stepped up and sort of done a kind of eight out of 10 sanctions effort against Russia, which is going to have a massive impact, unfortunately, mostly on the Russian people. And then the question becomes, does it have, what effect does it have on the Russian leadership? So you've clearly seen an attempt in, to freeze the assets of Russia's central bank and as much of its massive cash surplus as possible. We've seen a string of banks cut off from the SWIFT payment system. We've seen players like MasterCard and Visa, also Google Pay and Apple Pay, all walk out of Russia or say that their services won't be provided in Russia, all of which has a massive impact on ordinary Russian people. And although it's become quite politicised, for example, in the UK, we've seen a gradual increase in the number of oligarchs being sanctioned, including Vladimir Putin himself, arguably the ultimate oligarch, also some key political figures like Sergei Lavrov, the long-standing foreign minister. We've also seen an exodus of Western companies from Russia. One good example is IKEA. So you're seeing the sort of shock value and impact this is happening on Russian consumers, where suddenly, you know, the Russian economy has gone from one of being connected to the West to being incredibly separate in a way not seen since the perhaps the Cold War. Now, I said I think it was 8 out of 10, as it were. So this is a strong sanctions package. But can the West go further? And the answer is yes. The particular points being around oil and gas. That's how Russia generates foreign exchange revenue and surpluses. Today, I'm announcing the United States is targeting the main artery of Russia's economy. We're banning all imports of Russian oil and gas and energy. That means Russian oil will no longer be acceptable at U.S. ports and the American people will deal another powerful blow to Putin's war machine. The UK will do the same with oil by the end of the year. We want to see the elimination of Russian oil imports during the course of the year. This phased approach strikes a good balance. But a lot of countries in Europe are very dependent, particularly on Russian gas, to a lesser extent on Russian oil. The European Union also signaling they'll phase out Russian oil imports by 2030. And there's now talk of, of starting to sort of, of sanctions on Russian oil. We can do it, and we can do it fast. All we need is the courage and grit to get us there. If ever there was a time to do it, it's now. And then at some point you're going to have to get there with gas. And Dan, is the point of these sanctions so far? Is it just to punish Russia, you know, cause a bit of economic pain for its people in the hope that that might pressure Vladimir Putin? Or is the idea that you can cripple Russia so much that it actually affects their ability to finance this war, to keep buying equipment, to keep paying troops? I mean, is it possible that the sanctions could have that kind of effect too? I think it's sanctions is a long-term game. You know, the, the true effect of sanctions builds up over months and indeed and indeed years. I, I think the people who are really going to be hit by the sanctions are ordinary Russian people and Russian consumers. And, and that may create popular protest and popular dissent and pressure on Putin to 
reconsider the military strategy, you know, the problem you've got is that Russia's responded with astonishing authoritarian crackdown, which has seen it extinguish, you know, every last remaining piece of sort of free or liberal media in, in, in the country. No to war was the final statement made on Rain TV. The channel's suspending operations after being threatened with closure by authorities. It started to dramatically restrict the use of the internet and I seem to be heading towards a kind of China-style great firewall model at bewildering speed. Today, the Russian president signed a new law that threatens a 15-year prison sentence for spreading war information the Russian government deems to be false. This comes as the country banned access to social media giants Facebook and Twitter. Whether sanctions will impair Russia's ability to warfight in Ukraine, I'm not quite sure. Russia, of course, has more than enough fuel supply, if only it can get it to the forces in the front line. So that's not an issue. It may well be that some of these high-tech sanctions, because there are sanctions on semiconductors and the like, may well have problems in the supply chain for spare parts, for, for fighter planes or sophisticated air defense systems, things like that. But that feels like it's a longer game. So... Again, a bit like with military equipment, the West response has been has been real and its impact on Russia will be real. But it's not enough to drastically alter the course of the conflict in Ukraine right now. And that's the problem. I guess there's no shortage of these dilemmas here, not least because as we apply sanctions, the cost of oil and gas in the West also goes up. Fuel prices have soared to record highs. The average cost of diesel close to hitting 165 pence per litre. Another possible way of intervening against Russia could be cyber warfare. Now, Russia clearly has its own vast capabilities, but so do Western forces. Has there been consideration of using technology to disrupt the Russian invasion or target its logistics? Cyber is one of the things that we thought would be a big feature of of this conflict. And maybe there'll be a cyber dimension in due course, but actually... It's, it's a dog that hasn't really barked very much. You know, Russia, despite, you know, the Western idea that Russia are sort of experts are hybrid warfare, the reality is when pushes come to shove and an actual war's broken out, they preferred old school kinetic warfare, which is really about, you know, bombing and killing, I'm afraid to say. There's no polite way of putting it. So what's interesting is that this, this, this largely hasn't happened. Now, again, I think with cyber, there are a couple of options here. Ukraine had come under sort of, a sustained cyber attack for about eight, you know, since 2014 from Russia. And in some respects, actually, was along with Georgia, the sort of the, the world cyber front line. There have been attempts to sort of knock out power supplies in 2015 and 2016, you know, and so on and so forth. So they've had for quite a long time a relationship with the West where the West have provided kind of cyber expertise, cyber defenses to Ukraine. And in some respects, Ukraine's probably one of the better defended countries in the world. What is also possible is whether you could gauge in some sort of slightly more offensive cyber techniques. This is a much um, greyer and more secretive area, whether you would be able to sort of take the fight to the Russians in, 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 in cyberspace. Now, I think the idea of the West taking, taking the fight directly to Russia or in mainland Russia, I think we're back into it, it would be an act of war territory and I think it would be quite dangerous. But it's clear that there are possibilities sort of in, in countries. So it, it would be possible, for example, to try and disrupt Russian communications. Russian communica military communications are already quite poor within, within Ukraine. They're often using, you know, open radio. People have been able to listen in to some of their communications. So there are some options short of 
warfare by which, uh, and I think the the US, the UK and other Western nations are engaged in this, where you can sort of help the Ukrainians defend themselves. But these are pretty subtle. And I, it's not obvious if, they, if in this area it's making much difference or could make much difference. Dan, here again, I see that difficult tightrope walk you've been telling us about, where Western governments are trying to help the Ukrainians, but not doing anything that might risk Russia escalating the conflict to perhaps Ukraine's neighbours like Poland or Moldova. Those countries, of course, have the added protection of being NATO members. What has this war done for NATO? NATO has absolutely come alive. I mean, it's 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 tra- it's transformational, actually. Look at the contrast with what happened in the summer in Afghanistan. You know, NATO had been in the country for twenty years, and it ended up being an ignominious, hasty, disorganised retreat. You know, in which Ashraf Ghani, you know, fled at the first you know first sight of conflict, and the, and, and the Taliban, hitherto the enemies, marched in, took over, and we saw this messy and chaotic withdrawal it was an absolute humiliation for nato and at that point you kind of wondered what what was the sort of west's appetite for any kind of coordinated and concerted action you know what's happened here you know in the in in the ukraine case has been you know nothing short of extraordinary you've seen increases in the number of troops deployed in eastern european nato countries in poland in romania in estonia for example where britain's contributed doubling of troops and a real effort to to shore up the, the, the security and defence of those countries. You talked about no-fly zones. You know, NATO's been very clear, saying repeatedly, attack one NATO member, you attack us all. And that's been reinforced by, by genuine military activity. So, for example, let's talk that, that, that Britain will send one of its uh, sophisticated Sky Sabre air defence system into Poland to effectively enforce a kind of no-fly line between Ukraine and Poland, should it ever come to that. But it's interesting because this is something that Vladimir Putin has has feared over the years, isn't it? I mean, he, he, part of his motivation for this war is the fear that NATO was encroaching too closely to his territory. I mean, it just sounds like a massive miscalculation that what he's done has actually had the effect of strengthening this alliance that even as recently as last summer looked like it might be finished. That's right. It is absolutely a massive miscalculation in this respect and indeed many others. I mean, you have to remember prior to 2014, there weren't really NATO troops in Eastern Europe. And what was the thing that got NATO troops into Eastern Europe in the first place? Well, of course, it was, you know, the Russian invasion of Crimea and the proxy attack on the Donbass region in the east of Ukraine. That's what prompted this. Now we're seeing what's likely to be a doubling, even a tripling. Okay, but it's clear that in Ukraine, at least, NATO won't be getting directly involved anytime soon. But what about a more neutral organisation? Like I'm thinking about the the blue helmets of of UN peacekeepers, you know, their, their white Land Rovers. Are we likely to see any of those in Ukraine anytime soon? We are already seeing a situation where humanitarian organisations are sort of desperate to become more involved and, and, and desperate to start enforcing ceasefires and protections for civilians. If you're going to try and achieve anything through a traditional UN route, through the UN Security Council, Russia is a permanent member of the Security Council. It has a veto. It's going to use its veto. And Russia's actually president of the Security Council at the moment. So it chairs over proceedings in which in which de- delegates are largely, though not exclusively, united against it. 
So the idea that you're going to use some kind of UN mechanism to authorize or achieve anything, um, a formal UN mechanism, is, is very, very unlikely because Russia is not going to concede to that. Coming up, Putin has put his nuclear forces on high alert. What are the chances this conflict escalates? From what you've said, Dan, governments are trying to walk this extremely fine line where they're giving weapons, levelling sanctions, basically doing everything right up to the line of intervening. And Vladimir Putin said over the weekend that he already considers sanctions to be an act of war. Is there a risk here that the West is being a bit too clever, that we think we're walking this tightrope, but the Russians might see it as the West already directly involved? I think there is a risk. And I think what Vladimir Putin is saying when he's talking about an act of war is I think he's trying to open up a bit of space for him potentially to, to come up with his own retaliatory actions. Now, they could be in the economic sphere. Look at it from the other way around. Russia could just turn off the supply of oil and in particular gas now. It hasn't done so. Perhaps it needs the money. But I think that, the, that he's clearly in part setting the stage for, well, if I, if I go to a next step, that, that's because it's been justified. Dan, looking in the background of all these measures we've been talking about, are the calculations being made about what effect it might have on, on Vladimir Putin, whether he could be provoked into escalating the current war into a nuclear one? And we've already seen Russian forces last week apparently willing to shell a nuclear power plant, something Boris Johnson said was a threat to all of Europe. What are the dangers here in terms of this conflict escalating? A week ago, he summoned the Defence Secretary Shoigu and Military Chief of Staff Grasimov to one of these sort of ridiculous kind of, you know, show meetings in, in, in the Kremlin and said that the nuclear forces of the Russian army should be transferred to a special mode of combat duty. And then everyone kind of panicked and said, what on earth does that mean? And, and the feeling is it doesn't actually mean anything in the Russian military doctrine. But it was, in other words, a none too subtle diplomatic, you know, keep out warning. I have these weapons. Don't get involved in Ukraine because I might start, you know, I might start using them and I might use them against you. Now, I think that we have to be calm here. I think the risk is low. It did perhaps go up a notch following Putin's words, but what, what the Pentagon's been saying is it hasn't seen any change in the disposition of, of Russian nuclear forces. One of the things that might happen if Russia was serious would be it would start spreading out its land-based intercontinental ballistic missiles. It would start spreading them out around Siberia and the like, where they would evade detection. And if the US started seeing that, then you would say that, 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 they, were es that they were escalating. None of that has occurred. So the other question, though, is could we see a more limited nuclear escalation, this idea that Russia might deploy what's laughably called a tactical nuclear weapon? I mean, there really is no such thing. We are talking something that could easily be a you know, Hiroshima-sized nuclear strike. But could you deploy that somewhere in, in Ukraine or perhaps above the sky in some way to show that you really mean business and that, that, that Kiev must surrender? You know, we have to hope and believe that that, that such action wouldn't occur. The worry, of course, is that just if you look at Vladimir Putin at the moment, he really is sort of cut off and remote 
clearly being isolated from, is, you know, physically isolated from key officials, uh, has all these meetings at the end of long tables. So this solitary decision maker who is, appears isolated from, to some extent, from colleagues and is isolated from the world is, is a sort of scary and unpredictable one. It's just so profoundly depressing to have this conversation and come away thinking that Putin holds all the cards here, that essentially we can try and hit him economically and try to slow his military advance down by supplying the Ukrainians with weapons. But is that basically the strategy here, to just try to make this war so painful to Russia that Putin comes to his senses and pulls back? I mean, is there really nothing else we can do in a decisive way to help? I think you've summed up what what the West strategy is very well there, which is, you know, essentially that it is to impose a very high cost on Russia if it wants to win this war, a high cost militarily and a, and a high cost economically. But no, none of the things the West is doing, either militarily or economically, are enough to force Russia to retreat quickly, to guarantee a Ukrainian victory. And, and this is... This is quite a depressing prospect. Now, it may be that there'll be some sort of palace coup and that Putin is deposed, but his grip on power is pretty strong and he's really very alert to challenges to his authority. You know, I don't see that as very likely. So it may be that he's deposed and suddenly we get a change of policy. Okay, that would be that 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 would be fantastic. But is it very is it very likely? I don't I I, I don't judge it is. The reality is that Russia's nuclear threats have been enough to prevent the West from getting involved militarily to defend Ukraine. And that feels like those nuclear threats are sufficiently alarming. Which Western politician wants to risk that? Hmm. You know, thanks to the journalists on the ground and thanks to social media, over the next few days and weeks, we're going to see a lot of incredible and graphic detail from this war. We're probably going to see a lot of death, a lot of siege, a lot of suffering, And that's going to be really hard to watch. But it sounds like from what you're saying, those of us who watch these scenes and say, can't something more be done, we'll have to just accept that the answer for now is is no, that we shouldn't hope for a decisive intervention to try to bring this war to a close. I'm afraid I think you're right. And I think this is what you outlined as a horrific and depressing prospect. It's so moving. You ha- you just feel for the um, the people of Ukraine, and I think you what you're seeing cities being destroyed. You're you're clearly seeing you know potentially millions of people on the move. There's already I think 1.3 million refugees in the country. You're seeing a massive destruction in the east, and I think you're seeing something terrible and awful because frankly, I think Mariupol was a city of 450,000, and if 200,000 people want to leave, then then that's a whole way of life disappearing, you know, and the city's being destroyed. And that's just one, you know, one example. And I think something similar may be happening in Kharkiv. So you're seeing a terrible and fearful destruction. And you you said it, Mike, there are brave journalists and even braver citizens recording a lot of what's going on, on, you know, on smartphones. And for now, at least, they're able to get those, you know, until the cell sites perhaps get destroyed, I don't know, or the internet stops functioning, they're able to get all those images and messages out to the West. And so, yeah, you can go on your phone and you can see in real time some terrible, terrible imagery and video of what's going on. And I think that 
that, that's going to be quite depressing and disquieting for a lot of people. Um, and then the ability to stop that because the Russian military machine is able to grind on and the West can only do so much. Well, Dan, at least you've given us some sense of, you know, when we watch those scenes, why a more robust response is, is much more complicated than it seems. So thanks very much. Thanks, Mike. That was Dan Saber, The Guardian's defence and security editor. Thanks very much to him. Before we go, if you enjoy listening to The Guardian's Jonathan Friedland discussing US politics every Friday, you'll want to subscribe to his new podcast as Johnny's show won't be available on Politics Weekly for much longer. It's called Politics Weekly America and you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. So to get all the latest news from Washington and beyond, search for Politics Weekly America and hit subscribe. That's Politics Weekly America at every Friday. And that is it for today. This episode was produced by Elizabeth Casson. Sound designs by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producers are Phil Maynard and Mithley Rao. Back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.